All right, we got the juices flowing. We're suitably unruly. So let me ask you your warm-up question. This is your warm-up question. This is a little bit for like Jesus-following veterans. If you're just kind of seeking after God or in the early stages, and if you haven't maybe been following Jesus for very long, maybe this question won't make so much sense to you. But for you Jesus-following veterans, let me ask you. If you follow Jesus and keep his commands... What kind of relationships will you have in this life? Just think about that for eight seconds. If, if you're going for it, you're following Jesus, you're keeping his commands, what does that do for the relationships in your life? How would you characterize them for me on balance overall? All right, what are your answers? Crazy. crazy. Your relationships will be crazy. I'm here for you. I'm right here. I'm right here, man. Crazy. What else? Variety. Interesting. What else? Loving. You have loving relationships. Good. That's a good Christian answer. There we go. Thank you. Deep. You'll have deep relationships, which will be de- deeply good or deep trouble. Trouble. Both. Both. They'll just, they'll just be deep. They'll be extreme. Interesting. Okay. What else? Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. It's like the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. May you have interesting relationships. What else? What else? Contentious. 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 One more. Who's got the best answer? What will following Jesus do to your relationship life? Rich. Be rich. That's an optimistic answer. There's one. Way to go, Carrie. It'll make you flexible. Make you flexible, says my wife. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, so I asked that question of, of uh, our Ohana group um, uh, Wednesday night, and immediately, like, nine of them said, oh, it'll make your relationship life very hard. Very hard. And then we had this awkward moment where we realized what we were doing and looked at all of our friends... <laughs> And they and say, what does that say about us? Uh, but, uh, you know, but gen- generally the answers are, well, it will make your relationships tough, challenging, crazy. I mean, 80% of your answers were along those lines. It will make your relationships good. Why? Well, because, you know, you'll get good at loving people, presumably, and that will do good things in people around you. So there'll be some goodness Richness, nobody actually said good, but at least you said some things that sort of leaned that way. Uh, uh, And uh, I think you'll get lots of both, right? That if you follow hard after Jesus, you will have lots of relationships of all kinds. Somebody said variety. Uh, Why? Well, because your business is loving people, right? If you follow Jesus, then your business is loving people and blessing people and and changing people uh, toward uh, eternal goodness and and stuff like that. So you have tough relationships, you have good relationships, and you'll have a lot of both. A lot of tough relationships and a lot of good relationships. Do you think that's true? On balance? Will you have great relationships? Some? Sort of? Well, think about that for a minute. We're in this sermon series on finishing well in life. And of course, what we mean is finishing well in life uh, with, with Jesus. 
Uh, what we want to do in life is we want to make it into eternity, yes? And uh, we want to have some heavenly bank when we get there. As Jesus said, we want to have treasures in heaven when we show up. And, and making it and having treasures in heaven, that is sort of the biblical definition of finishing well, right? We want to run the whole race and we don't want to fall off the race as we go and just kind of uh, fall out of contention, disqualify ourselves. And to finish life well, well, we got to navigate life well. we got to figure out what we should be doing. John spoke about that a little bit earlier in his testimony. And the best way to do that, according to Jesus, is to be both mystical and non-mystical. Right? You want to hear God uh, through the Holy Spirit directly every day, but you want to just kind of figure out things practically uh, through scriptural input and, and stuff like that. We want to minister unceasingly, because life equals ministry. Right? We're supposed to love God, we're supposed to love people, uh, we're supposed to be uh, spreading the kingdom wherever we go, and never, 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 ever stop doing that. Uh, every week you want to be ministering. You always want to be gathering at least one non-believer, uh, because this is a fundamental aspect of uh, kingdom living. The unpopular word for that is evangelism or proselytizing. Uh, the more politically correct word for that would be like gathering or sharing, but you always want to be influencing at least one person in your relational circle toward Jesus, and that is my best tip for keeping your ministry life uh, fresh. Uh, we want to exercise nonconformity because the world is always trying to get you con to conform in different ways. Uh, we talked recently about the necessity for being savage uh, in a good way, like John the Baptist, because it's a fight. And if you're unwilling to be savage or you kind of fall out of that attitude, you will get taken out. Last week we talked about how to finish well, you need to master the skill of making yourself behave, just to put it generally, which is always going to be a combination of self-discipline and learning to find external discipline where you need it in your life. There'll be some places where you're not so self-disciplined. So if you're going to make it, you're going to have to figure out how to get some external discipline exerted upon you, maybe through your community or organizations or, or something like that. And today, we are going to talk about enduring relationships uh, because relationships are a big deal in following Jesus, and we want enduring relationships. We want enduring relationships, which is a double entendre. It has a double meaning if, if you're not following. To have enduring relationships, uh, you want to have relationships that endure, that last, and you also want to develop the ability to endure the relationships you have. Um, and that is a really, really important skill because, you heard it here first, relationships kill. Relationships kill. Should be a bumper sticker. Relationships bless. Relationships give life. Uh, but relationships also and so if we're going to make it, uh, we need to learn how not to be taken out by our relationships. And that might sound incredibly jaded, uh, but I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I've been leading people uh, who walk with Jesus for a long time, doing ministry a long time, and I can tell you with, with no hesitation whatsoever that relationships are the number one killer of spirituality. Easily, by far. There is no comparison. More than anything else in the world, relationships take out Christians. Take out Christians. And so you have to have some skill and some wisdom uh, where they uh, are concerned. Most Christians understand that relationships can be tough. 
Right? We all understand that they're supposed to be good, but we also all understand that relationships can be tough, which was clear by the answers that you guys gave me when I asked the introductory question. They're tough because we're called to love, and we all understand that love, when it comes right down to it, is self-sacrificial. John uh, 15, 13, no greater love as a person than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. Um, and how many of you have heard that verse before? You veteran Jesus followers, you are supposed to lay down your life. Now, how does that sound, generally? Painful, right? Sacrificing yourself. Uh, sacrificing yourself means sacrificing what? Yes. <laughs> yes, all of the above. Everything. But give me some practice. Your preferences. Your time. Your energy, reputation. your reputation. Almost nobody will do that, by the way, but yes. Et cetera, uh, et cetera. And the, the true lifestyle of love, any veteran Christian can tell you, is, is difficult uh, to pull off, and, um, and few of us do it consistently, uh, which is to say that few of us uh, do it well, um, uh, sometimes uh, we spend uh, a lot of time finding people that are easy to love and we hang around the people that we like loving. We know that we're supposed to hang around people that are just there, our neighbors, right? As Jesus put it, whomever happens to be near you. Uh, and so that's a discipline a as well. And we have lots of escape hatches for ourselves when it comes to loving sacrificially. You know, lots of psychological palliatives. You know, we talk about healthy boundaries and stuff like that. Like, well, I'm loving this person, but you know, it's really draining and I have to have healthy boundaries and stuff like that, which, you know, it has some merit. But then you read, uh, you know, like all these canonical Jesus teachings about love, like Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And I bet you've heard these, these verses, even if you're not a Jesus follower, you probably know this teaching from Christ himself, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, which is to say, God loves everybody, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not particularly Christ-like? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do not even unbelievers do that? Uh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, literally, that means be complete in the same way that your heavenly Father uh, is complete. So love your enemies, which is to say, hey, if you want to be like God, Love your enemies. Love people who are actively trying to hurt you. Not accidentally hurting you, not frustrating you, not difficult, but like actively trying to destroy you. Those are the people that you should be prioritizing in your love life, so to speak. Um, which is just nuts. Which is just a terrible, terrible teaching. Right? It sounds like a teaching for self-destruction. 
uh, particularly if you have real enemies uh, in life. And we have a pretty nice culture, but maybe some of you actually had some real enemies in your life. And if you love those who are seeking to destroy you, that is by definition a lack of healthy boundaries, it seems to me. You know, and it's just, it's very frustrating for me to think about this. You know, it's, if you love someone who's trying to kill you, that, that is by definition a lack of limits, a lack of restrictions. Which well, doesn't mean that you shouldn't have boundaries or that you shouldn't have strategic limits in your life and stuff like that. It just means that you have to really think this stuff through. You know, and you have to be willing to push yourself to really uncomfortable places, according to Christ. And all of his teachings on love have this very challenging quality to them. All right, but as veteran Jesus followers, we kind of know this. We kind of know that uh, all is fair in war, or love is war. It's supposed to be a fight. Love is savage. Just turn to somebody and say, love is savage. Yeah. Yeah, some of you saying that to your spouses. Good job. <laughs> you know, uh, but if you've been following, I'm not saying too much that is new to you if you've been following Jesus or if you've been hanging around Blue Water for any length of time. So, because loving enemies is difficult. Loving enemies is difficult. Loving uh, destructive people are, is difficult. But... We're talking about how to finish well in life. And here's the thing. What destroys our faith isn't struggle against enemies. What destroys our faith, more often than not, is disappointment with friends. This is the killer. And this is the thing at which we must get very good if we're going to make it. I say disappointment with friends, but you could substitute disappointment with close ones, disappointment with family, disappointment with spouses. Don't look, disappointment with spouses. Uh, that sidelines us more than anything else in life. Um, that is a truism, an ironclad uh, truism that I have learned over uh, the years. In my experience, this is the number one killer of Christians is disappointment with friendly people in your life, with good people uh, in your life. And, uh, and what we do without realizing it is we develop these, these, little, these little pocket theologies uh, that if we were to say them out loud would sound really ridiculous. You know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive everyone except those who disappoint you. That's how most of us live, if unchecked, right? If undisciplined. It's like, you know, I will, I will forgive someone who's trying to destroy me, but I will not forgive a friend who's falling short on my expectations of our relationship. You know, uh, that's where the bitter roots uh, take place. Have grace for crass worldly people you know jesus loved the sinners and he loved the tax collectors but don't have grace for your family members don't have grace for your spouse for pete's sake because you know your spouse is legally obligated to satisfy you that's that's what the vows were about right 
You know? And we go to those very weird places. It's a bizarre but very real phenomenon uh, in, the, in the body uh, of Christ. You know, as, as in marriages. I, you know, I tell, I tell these jokes sometimes. You know, don't look, don't look at your spouse. Um, but um, I do a lot of uh, like premarital counseling or marriage counseling. Tro- couples in trouble will come into my office, sit on the couch, and seek marriage advice from me. Can you believe that, honey? Marriage advice from me. It's, like, it's hilarious, I'm telling you. Like, they have no clue. They have no clue whatsoever. Uh, but I'm like, hmm, yes, yes. As if, I, as if I know what I'm doing, right? But uh, my most quoted Bible verse in marriage counseling is Matthew 5, uh, verse 43. Love your enemies. Uh, love your enemies. Uh, is your spouse your enemy? You know, and occasionally someone will say, yes. <laughs> but usually they're like, no, 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 no. Oh, so they should be easier to love than someone who was outright trying to destroy you. But, 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 but. Uh, um, so that's my snarky, typically snarky, uh, way of, of just kind of shocking people into a world where you can actually then do some healing and some grace because your spouse is the person with whom you should be more gracious, more generous, more patient, more forgiving, more permissive than anyone else in the world. I mean, you can maybe argue that with respect to your kids, except your kids have, you know, you're supposed to be shaping them. Um, but if you forget that, if you get out of that mindset, then your spouse becomes a very aggravating person because you have higher expectations for that relationship than in any other relationship in your life. And that's the rub, right? Your expectations for goodness in your marriage are really, really high, and therefore it tends to make you less and less gracious in that relationship. And that's just a human tragedy uh, that many of us uh, fall into. Uh, in some respect, that plays out in a lot of different family relationships. You know, my parent, my dad, or whatever, isn't dadly enough, right? And therefore, I reserve the right to be rankled, to be a little upset about that, you know, and a little judgmental uh, about that. Whereas, in fact, you know, I should be more forgiving toward my father. Are you listening, Jeremiah? More forgiving. <laughs> My father. You've done good this morning. You actually said that I was correct about something. So God bless you. I'm a good, he's a very solid kid. I've got nothing to complain about. Um, um, but we do that in families because we have a lot of expectations about relationships. And we do it in churches, right? If you're a church person, if you've been involved in church for a long time, then we have high expectations from relationships from our brothers and sisters. We, we expect that because we're all Christians together, these relationships should be particularly, well, satisfying, right? You know, and helpful and robust and rich and proper and Christ-like and stuff like that. And if we're not careful, what happens is that we let those expectations just squeeze the grace right out of us. And we end up being highly judgmental particularly in those relationships in which we should be the least judgmental of all. Are you following me? Do you think this is true? Does this happen? I see it happen um, all the time. I am blessed relationally. 
I'm a relationally blessed man. Do you agree with this? Yes, says my wife. (laughs) You might think, well, that's not true, Jordan, because you're not very relationally skilled. True. I am hyper-introverted, almost pathologically so. True. I'm not a great conversationalist. True. However, I am blessed with very low relational expectations. This is an advantage that I have in life, and I've always had it, uh, in part because, you know, it, many of you know, like my early life was incredibly stormy and very unstable, and my family fractured all over the place, and I lived with different people in different places at different times, and we moved around all the time. I, for a while, I wasn't even allowed to have friends because we were living under assumed names and stuff like that, and if you don't know the story, don't worry about it. Um, but that's kind of where I came from, and so... I I learned to be incredibly self-contained and that people were there to be managed, that you got what you got, where you got it, and then just sort of took it and, you know, said thank you and left. You know, that was kind of my life for a while. And in a bizarre way, I think this has turned out to be an advantage for me uh, because I have very low expectations of you people, you know. Uh, some incredibly great people here, some really, really good people here. Um, you know, um, but I can just kind of receive. And then if you do something that maybe a normal, healthy person would see as a shortcoming, it doesn't really bug me very much. And so, yay, I'm trying to blow my own horn because I get to do it so rarely when it comes to relationships. Um, but I'm also, you know, handicapped in that, you know, I, I was at least formally a very socially awkward uh, fellow. Um, and, uh, and I remember uh, uh, the, the very first time I really had stable Christian fellowship um, was when I got to college, because it was the first time in my life where I was going to be in one place around the same people for an extended period of time with the same believers. Um, So I had this great college fellowship. They're very discipleship-oriented, and it was very relationally intense, which tends to happen in Christian fellowships where everybody's the same age, you know, and they got kind of like self-involved a little bit. Um, But I remember, uh, like, I had some ministry skills, but um, the, the leaders sat me down once and said, just to be clear, Jordan, we will never let you lead in this Christian fellowship because we don't trust your relationships with people. We think you do okay with God, but we don't like the way that you relate with people, so we don't think that you're going to be um, a ministry leader. Um, and I remember thinking about that uh, and saying, um, that's okay. You know, that's okay. I'm still learning from you. I'm still getting something good here. Like a decade later, I got an apology for that. Um, and I'm still, alas, not a Christian leader. But I have this job. And I show up. And I do the best I can, people. So, so there. Um, I look back at that time and I laugh at myself, you know. But something really important happened there because I was able, in my weird, awkward, handicapped sort of way, to say, there's still great goodness 
in this fellowship for me, even if they don't like me very much, which is kind of how I felt. Um, I'm, still, I'm still feeding here. And I think I happened into that mindset because of my handicaps, because of my awkwardness and my bizarre upbringing. But I think there is a maturity there that I would like to recommend to everybody. If you have the ability to sort of find blessing, even in relationships that are far less than ideal, then you're going to be free to love in that place as well. One thing I say at every wedding I do uh, is I say, try not to need anything from each other. That's what I tell the bride and groom, right? Some of you are nodding. I've said this at all of your weddings that I've done. He's like, yes, and you meant it. Um, because as soon as you really need something from each other, from, from somebody, then you won't love them as freely as you would otherwise. And marriage, of all relationships, should be a place of freedom, uh, where love is given uh, very freely. I know it's complicated. Anyway, here's my best advice. I'll leave you with a couple tips uh, this morning, and we'll call it good. Two tips for enduring relationships, which is to say having relationships that endure through time, but also enduring the relationships that you have as a Christian. Being mindful that you will have a lot of relationships as a Christian, and a lot of them will be tough. Be some good ones, but a lot of tough ones as well. Tip number one, love your friends as if they were enemies. been such a good piece of advice for me. Love your friends as if, you were, as if they were your enemies. Of course, you could sub substitute words in there, right? Love your family as if they were your enemies. Love your spouse as if he or she were an enemy. And of course, what we mean there is like, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he was saying, you cannot possibly have any expectation of good return from an enemy who's trying to destroy you. Love them anyway, because that's your call. And there's joy in the loving. Right? There's joy in being free and being able to empty yourself, and there's Christ-likeness in it. And wherever, wherever love is released, power follows. Wherever love is released, power follows. And power usually won't be released until love happens. Love your friends as if they were enemies. And one thing this does is it makes for extraordinarily empowering friendships. You know, extraordinarily empowering families and marriages uh, to boot. Are you more patient with aggravating people who aren't your friends or with aggravations from your friends? The first one, you're more patient with aggravating people who aren't your friends because you have no expectations from them, right? But if you were similarly patient with your friends, then probably you would be a lot freer in your friendships. Right? Love would be released. And then when you did point out something you were impatient with, I bet it would go a lot better if you weren't so self-invested in your criticisms, self-interested in them. I bet it would go uh, a lot better. You should have more grace for people with whom you are close than with people with whom you are distant. That's logical, right? You should find it easier to give grace to people whom you legitimately love and are fond of. Uh, although, as I said, this is not always uh, the case. 
Um, have you ever had a friendship where you just had each other's back? We're like, hey man, no matter what happens, no matter what fool stuff you get into, I'm going to cover you. Have you ever had a relationship like that? No matter what you do, I'm there for you. If you foul up, I'm the guy who comes in and makes the correction. Right? If you blow it, I'm going to see the protection of your reputation. Have you ever had a relationship like that? If you have, raise your hand. A quarter of us. The kind of relationship I am describing, I have seen chiefly in what I call combat friendships, which is weird. So uh, imagine like you serve in the military uh, fighting next to someone in trench warfare. Like every day you're in the mud, you're fighting life and death. After the war, you're going to be friends for the rest of your life, period. It doesn't matter what foolishness he gets into, she gets into, right? Why? Because you've gone through an experience where you had to have each other's back, right? You didn't have to like that person, but you did need to rely on him to cover you when the enemy was trying to kill you. And that's bonding in a way that kind of transcends judgments. Are you following me? Uh, and so some of us have had relationships like that short of an actual war theater. You know, occasionally they, they happen in, in sports. I've noticed particularly violent sports. They can happen in particularly uh, intense uh, uh, like business challenges. I've been a part of a few startups and stuff like that where you feel like you're in a combat situation or you just had very traumatic experiences with someone. Maybe when you were young, you've gone, I lived in a very challenging uh, place when I was a kid, and, and some of the relationships I have with these guys who I don't even really like have lasted for decades because we went through something together and feel like we can trust each other, therefore. Do you know what I mean? And I'm just sharing this characterization with you to kind of give an impression of what I think a certain sort of health looks like. It's not everything, you know, but it's like, hey, no matter what, I've got you covered, man. And I would just love to see more of that in Christian friendships or marriages or family situations. And some of you have that, of course, uh, and, and that's beautiful. So love your friends as if they were enemies. And number two, finally, don't be a relational uh, legalist, uh, which is don't, don't demand perfection in, in your relationships, whatever you define perfection as. Um, weak churches are routinely moral. What's going on? Is that my battery? Weak churches are routinely destroyed by legalism. Strong churches are often destroyed by relational legalism. By which I mean, if you have a community and you expect healthy relationships and friendships and people in church to treat you really, really well, one easy thing for Satan to do is just to disappoint you with some of those relationships, and then you get very fussy, dissatisfied with your church, and you break away, and then somebody else breaks away, and all these schisms and rifts open up in what is actually a fairly healthy, good community that's helping people. And so I call that relational legalism. It's just disappointment with the people around you because I'm here to tell you that the people around you are not perfect. Don't look. Um, and some of us are less perfect than others. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> what I'm saying here is that you have high expectations for your Christian relationships. And, um, and that means that you might be more demanding in those relationships. And then to fuel your demand, you might just 
take all the grace out of the way that you treat people. I've, I've literally seen this destroy really great uh, living churches in the past. Or we have expectations for what Christians call discipleship, you know, and we feel like we need to be able to really influence people the way we want in, in a Christian church. And, and then they disappoint us or they uh, cause friction and then we get very impatient uh, with them. Um, in general, uh, it kind of squeezes the life out of relationships. And I have a little proverb uh, that I share with myself. Uh, it's just a proverb. It's not an absolute truth, but see if it makes sense for you. I'm speaking of relationships when I say the only way to get 50% improvement is to not think about 100% improvement. That make sense? If you demand ideal, if you demand total satisfaction in any relationship that you have, then you'll get zero satisfaction in that relationship. Whereas, you know, if you're like, well, I'll take the good with the good, and I'll be patient with some of the bad, then you actually get improvement in that relationship, at least incrementally, over time. Are you following? So I don't know what you call that skill. I love your friends as if they were enemies and don't be a relational legalist, but I think it's the key to enduring relationships. I think it's a key to keeping relationships together over the long term, and I think it's a key to you enduring the panoply, the range of good and bad relationships that you're going to have as a Christian. What's going to happen for you is that most people have a, relation, a quantity of relationships that look like this, a little hill. Christians have a quantity of relationships that look like this. A giant hill. You're going to have some very bad relationships, but just a few of them. They're on the tiny bit of the slope. It's like a bell curve. You know what a bell curve is? And then you're going to have some great relationships over here, but just a few of them. And then in the middle, you're going to have this fat curve of pretty good relationships. And your likelihood as a follower of Jesus is that you're going to have a huge number of pretty good relationships if you're okay with them being just pretty good. And what you'll find in the midst of pretty good relationships is a lot of goodness. As long as you don't demand it be greatness. And that condition will be characterized by lots of patience, lots of grace, lots of easygoing, some criticism and suggestions and love, as well as receiving some. It will be pretty good. Actually, there'll be a tremendous amount of life in it, a fat portion of life in it. Are you following me? And I think that you just need to get that uh, in your mindset. Um, can we do that? You can expect some tough relationships, uh, and a lot of good relationships, and the meat of your curve will be thick. Grace will probably uh, be required. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and uh, give you a little coaching, give me a little coaching in this, because we all have troubling relationships this morning. <clears throat> And if we're doing our job right, we might have a high number of them. <laughs> it's okay. You can do it. You can do it. And I think 
the wisdom lies in uh, letting Jesus guide you in the bits that you can change and letting Jesus sustain you in the bits that remain difficult. We are those who love enemies. We are those who love in the midst of difficulty. That's uh, a specialty. We can actually thrive in that place. We can actually thrive in that place. We can find joy and abundance and security and transcendence in that place. We will find Jesus in that place. A guy who was abandoned by his friends and killed by his enemies while he was still in his 30s. But man, did he overcome. Man, did he release power and change in the world. Man, did he create community. Be a community creator. Center of the storm. A generator of love in the world. An endurer. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Thank you, Lord, uh, for making uh, us those who endure in love, who generate a lot of family around us, who create a space in which love can thrive in the midst of difficulty. And thank you so much for a community of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.